This week has been a uh, fantastic week in uh, Oregon political history. Um, we have made national news, and so at least we're on the map for something, right? Um, other than rain and rust. Um, so welcome to Outward Church, and uh, thanks for being here. We're in a book called Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is a, is a book that's... Uh, basically written from the perspective of a very wise philosopher, and his name is Solomon. He's called the teacher or the preacher, or uh, you could call him a philosopher. That would probably be the best uh, designation for him. But here he is, and he's teaching us. He's telling us about life, and he's a guy who has gone into every detail of life, and he's pursued pleasure and he's pursued uh, work, and he's pursued everything that you can imagine because he had every resource available to him to be able to do so. He had every resource available to him to be able to seek after these things. And so he comes to the end of all of his seeking. After having been raised with with a dad that loved God, he goes into the world and he does all kinds of things, but then he comes out on the other end and he says, I've been there, done that, and let me tell you what I've learned. And so he's going to tell us this. And so it can be confusing at times because he's kind of riding both sides of the line. He's going to talk like he's a secularist at some points, as somebody who doesn't believe in God, but then at other points he's going to talk about somebody as somebody who truly does believe in God. And so he kind of goes back and forth between this. But we'll get into that in a minute. But this week, it has been kind of incredible. It's been very incredible. We, uh, we are just about to lose our elected governor, Governor Kitzhopper. And he is uh, set to resign on the 18th. We'll see if that happens. I'm assuming it will. We'll get a new governor. She'll be the first... Uh, uh, bisexual governor uh, in the country, I believe, first uh, openly bisexual governor um, in the country. There's been other stories as well. Think about uh, Brian Williams or uh, Bri-Y, as he's affectionately referred to on uh, late night TV shows and so forth. But he has been somebody who's been been a news uh, purveyor, somebody who talks about the news, and uh, one of the most respected news anchors in our country, uh, the top-rated uh, nightly news show. I watch it all the time. I actually enjoyed his newscast. But he's accused of having uh, bent the truth a little bit, added, added to some stories, made them, embellished them a little bit. I don't know that anybody's actually heard from him personally as to what his explanation is of those things. He certainly has said that he's made some missteps. I should go back and say that Governor Kitzhopper has been accused of of using his position, or at least his girlfriend using his position, for personal gain, getting contracts for people, getting jobs for people, being paid large sums of money, and not actually uh, reporting those things. The FBI is beginning to investigate the, the, the feds and, and so forth. There's investigations going on in our state as well. Who knows where that will end up? But that's what he's been accused of. You look at uh, this terrorism going on throughout the world. You look at uh, ISIS and what it's been doing 
in the Middle East and even in uh, Europe as of right now. I'm sure it will visit us again. But just yesterday, I believe, or the day before, a couple of different people were, were shot and killed because of this terrorist organization. You look at uh, what's gone on in our country just this weekend with uh, the movie Fifty Shades of Grey and uh, how, how that has gone down and what's happening in that situation. And I don't know how you feel about that movie. I've made a, a post on Facebook or a couple of different posts about how I, I personally uh, believe about that, how we as a church stand on this. Um, but it, it is a, a movie that portrays in my opinion, from what I've heard, and I have not read the book or seen the movie, so it is difficult to make um, assumptions about that. But what I am told is that the movie promotes the oppression of women at the hands of a wealthy man who has finances. And so he gets what he wants. He selfishly gets what he wants. And he takes uh, whatever he wants and he puts her under contract and I won't go into any more details from what I've read. But you look at all of this, you look at the oppression that, uh, that ISIS is doing towards women as well. And one of my posts on Facebook said, I mean, on, on Nightly News, in fact, there was a story about how ISIS has raped and pillaged. And the story is horrific. When you think about how these women have been treated as young as eight, they said, being sold into marriage or sold into slavery. And you can just imagine where that goes. I won't go into further detail on that. But it's horrific. It's the most angering thing I, I've heard all week. You look at the, the differences there, and you, you see ISIS who has weapons, who are oppressing women, but then you see this movie, Fifty Shades of Grey, and there's a man who's using his finances as a weapon to get what he wants. And our, and our country and our society doesn't see the difference, doesn't, doesn't, or the similarity, I should say, doesn't, doesn't see the similarities there, that at the root of it is humanity who wants what it wants and, and wants to get and wants to take and at any cost will go after that. And, and people have argued uh, back and forth uh, uh, on Facebook and even on my post talking about how, well, it was consensual between them. And I'm not even talking about, I'm not even going to get into the sordid details of what was consensual in those situations. I'm talking about simply the reality that there's two people who've got to sign a contract to be able to enter into this disturbing relationship that should never have hit the big screen, in my opinion, because sex is for marriage and that's in private. So there's all of these events that are going on in our life from uh, our government seemingly in shambles, at least on the state level, and depending on what party you're a part of, possibly uh, on the national level. You've got, even in the news, you've got Brian Williams, and he's supposed to be someone trusted. He's supposed to be someone who's sitting at a position of righteousness in essence as a trusted person who's going to tell us the truth, and it seems like he hasn't told the truth. But then you've got this absolute evil with ISIS that's going on in the Middle East and all over the world, really, and then you've got at home a shrouded 
sense of evil as well. What do we do with that? What do we do with all of this? This last week in Ecclesiastes, what we talked about is we talked about Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And it starts out in this way, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1, it says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And he goes through all of these things. And again, the song from the birds is going to come up. Um, A a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what, what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal. And rather than this just talking about the events of our lives, yes, these are the events of our lives. Yes, they are cyclical in nature. And they continue on. But what they're talking about here is this. What what Solomon is saying to us is he comes down in verse 14 and he says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. What that is stating here is this. Is that God is the one who's ultimately in control. And here are the events of our lives, and it seems like it's just this monotonous cycle, but yet God is the one who does all of these things. Whatever he does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. Now, what does this mean? When you look at our life and you go, what in the world is God doing? If you haven't thought about this, you should. Because there could come a day in your life where you come to the place, if you've been a Christian most of your life or even a short time, and you've never considered the problem of evil and the problem of pain and how that is reconciled in our lives, then you need to. And here's why. Because you're going to come to a day when unspeakable evil, if it hasn't already happened to you, when unspeakable evil can and will happen to you. I can almost guarantee it. That at some point in your life, you personally will experience it. I can guarantee it. That you will experience it at least in your friends, your family, the people around you. And if nothing else, in our world, you will see it. How is God sovereign in the midst of these circumstances? And what are we to do about it? How is is God sovereign? How are we to view these things? And what what should we do about them? What should we do about this evil that's going on in our world? Let's take a look here. We'll begin in verse 16 today. Actually, verse 15, I'll finish up. That which is already has been. And that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Kitsopper, our governor. In the place of justice, even there was wickedness. He hasn't been to court yet, but it seems pretty sketchy, right? Even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them 
that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go uh, to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beasts goes down into the earth. He's speaking as a secularist here. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, Solomon is asking some pretty intriguing questions here. And the questions that he's asking are these. He's saying, okay, God is sovereign, and yet these things take place. These things are happening. These things are, are continual. I, I'm, I'm seeing in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. In, in, in the place of our government, where everything should be just, we believe that God has given our government the ability to govern. There's no governing authority that does not have its power from God. That somehow all things will culminate into bringing glory to God, even evil governments. But our government especially, being a government that has some basis in at least morality or in some senses was based on the Ten Commandments. And here we are, we have a government that is supposed to be just and protect the people. And yet what's being called into question is to, is to whether they are actually just. And really what's being, being said here is that there's wickedness there. And the same thing goes for Brian Williams and the same thing goes for this idea of oppression that we see in chapter 4, verse 1. I, again, I saw all the oppressions that are under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. And then he's even talking about the oppressors. And, and he's saying, and, and here they are. And he's going to go on later about how they are uh, oppressing, and yet they continue to live on. And they continue to thrive while the righteous die. How do we deal with that? There's probably innumerable options that you could look at. But you could look at this and you, you could say, you know what? Since there's evil in our world, since there is the presence of evil, then what must be true is that there is no God. How can there be a loving God if he allows this level of evil to take place in our world? How can there be a loving God that would allow these things to happen? What, what, what are we supposed to think about that? How could God allow this to take place? That argument is based on something. That you stand before God, if there is a God, and you say to him, you know, you know God, you 
have violated my definition of morality. You have violated humanity's definition of morality. You have violated this. And so we come to God and we say, God, there is a moral standard that you have violated. But here's the problem. Our very question is based on something. The question that we have is based on a set of moral standards that we have set up in our mind. And so basically what you've just said is that you've subscribed to a moral standard that somehow you have in your mind. And what you're doing with that moral standard is you're saying this. You're saying, I do not believe that there is a God because he has allowed evil here and a good God would not allow evil. But here's the problem with that. You've subscribed to this definition of morality and the basis of your question is essentially based on the fact that there is some type of moral standard. And so the other option is this. If there is no God, and we really are, according to your science classes, just a collision of molecules, the result of uh, primordial soup, I believe they call it, a bunch of cells who accidentally came together, and if all of that took place, and it's just an accident, and, and nothing really went into that, and we're just essentially just here, then really what takes place is that it doesn't matter what we do. There's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad. It just is. Because of this, there is no moral standard to subscribe to. We're just people. We're essentially just like the animals, and we have nothing. We have nothing to subscribe to. And so what this looks like is this, is that if we are just an accident, there is no God, then there really is no moral standard. And so therefore, we should just all be able to do whatever we want. Many people subscribe to this thinking when they say, you know, you shouldn't be telling people what to do. But that in and of itself is a moral statement saying you should not. You should not do this. And so we've just made a moral statement saying uh, you shouldn't be able to do that, but really... You're doing the very same thing that someone else is doing. So everybody should be able to do whatever they want if there is no God, if there is no moral standard, because we are all here just the product of an accident. I'm an accident. You're an accident. I should be able to do whatever I want. In government, it shouldn't matter whether Governor Kitzhopper or his girlfriend does what they do. It shouldn't matter if Brian Williams wants to tell half-truths. It shouldn't matter if ISIS is doing what it's doing because there is no moral standard. There's no basis to call anything evil. You can't call Hitler evil and the Holocaust evil. You can't call anything evil because there is no basis to call it that. So here's the problem. Okay, so let's say that maybe you're tipping your hand and say, okay, I'll, I'll submit to the idea that there might be a God who has a moral code because you look at humanity and throughout humanity, there's some massive similarities. And that is that we all have this thing, like, I don't think you should punch me, right? I just don't think that should happen. And you might say, well, I, I think I should. But most people would say, I don't think somebody should be able to punch me. I don't think somebody should be able to take my property. I don't think somebody should be able to do this. Isn't it odd that all of us have these rights that are aligned in our mind, this moral code, 
that we know that it's not right to do this or that. And maybe we're not right on every single detail, but we have a basic understanding as to what we should and should not be doing. And so maybe you're saying, okay, maybe there is the possibility of a God, but what is the purpose of evil? What is the purpose of evil? Why would God allow evil to exist in our society? Well, here's a partial answer, because here's the thing. We can't finally and completely answer that question. The only honest thing to say is this. I don't fully know, because I am not God. I don't fully know. But here's what I do know, is that there is a God. I see his moral standard And so while I may not understand every detail as to why he would allow the things that he's allowed, wickedness where justice should should be, wickedness where righteousness should be, I don't understand why he's done that, but I will submit to him anyway. But here's some possible thoughts. I was in a discussion with somebody. Uh, on, on Facebook just yesterday, actually. And one of the things that was brought up was this idea of, of evil and so forth. But and, and essentially the problem was, why is there evil in the world? And I answered back and essentially said this. Can there really be any obedience if there isn't disobedience? Can I really obey God if there really is no such thing as disobeying God? Or can I really love God if there is no idea of hating God? Can I, can I love my spouse? Is that really love? Or am I just locked in as a robot towards love with my spouse or with my family or with the people around me, my friends? Is there really any love if there isn't hate? And the answer to that, I don't believe, is, is yes. In fact, C.S. Lewis says this. He says... I am going to submit that not even omnipotence, God, could create a society of free souls without at the same time creating a relatively independent nature. He then goes on to say this, try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you will find that you have excluded life itself. The idea of life and the things that we experience, the things that we love, the fact that we're, we're even able to say, why can't everybody be loving? Why would these fathers and these husbands and these sons rape and pillage in the Middle East in the way that they are? How could they do this? Well, it's because there's the possibility of hate and we're longing for love. We're longing for love to be there, and we're longing for love. And those men who are doing this, they're longing for sexual fulfillment. See, this idea of hate and love, or these opposite things, one of them stands out because there is the possibility of another. And C.S. Lewis says, I I doubt that there's even the possibility of a society that only has one, because essentially we'd only have one choice. There would be no free will involved in what's happening. We would not have the ability to choose this God. And so our life would just be a series of affirmations. Yes, I'm doing this. Yes, I'm doing this. Yes, I'm doing this. The very fact that you long for love tells you something. It tells you a couple things. One is this. 
is that you have a desire that's outside of yourself that all things should be perfect. You have a desire that's built into your life and that's built into your mind that all things should be perfect. In fact, what Solomon says here earlier in the passage, he says in verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What Solomon is saying is he's saying, He's saying, there's this idea of eternality. There's this idea of something that never ends. Sexual pleasure never ends is our desire. Desire for unending relationships. The desire for perfect love that is all forgiving. That never offends us. The desire for perfect sunny days like we have today. This perfection that we're looking for, we're looking for something eternal, and when we look at our life and we see that it's, it's, it just stops, and it just, it just ends, and the way that Solomon explains it, and he says, it's just vanity. It's meaningless. It's a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow, and you, you're grasping at life, and you keep going after things, and you keep going after things, and you just keep missing it, and you just keep missing it. So we have this desire that things will never end. We have this desire of perfect peace. We have this desire for a utopian society, and that has been placed in us by God. Now, you may want to argue with God, and you, might, you may want to say, God, how could you? And I'm with you there, because I'd like to argue that point with God too. But just because we don't like the facts of how God decided to do something, does that make them illegitimate? Just because I don't like what God does, does that mean that somehow I have overridden his wisdom and his knowledge and that somehow he should obey me and that he should fall in line with what I am? That I should some, that, or, or should I just discount him? Well, it's like the relationship with a parent. My children don't understand what's going on. They can't, they can't see beyond it. And I say, and I say uh, son or daughter, don't go over there. Because I see that there's water over there in this park. And I know that you are not a strong swimmer. And so I don't want you to go over there. But the, the child is thinking to himself or herself and saying, I want to go over that hill now because you told me that you don't want me to. But what the child can't see is what I can see, that I can see over there. Simply because I'm taller. Or simply because I have greater wisdom than that child does. God is often referred to as our Father. He is God the Father. And the reason why that's communicated to us is He wants us to know and He wants us to understand that He is our Father. And that He knows better than we do. Tim Keller has a great story that he talks about. He t talks about in the South where they have these uh, little biting insects called noceums. And he says, you can have a tent, you can have a screen on it, you can close the door. And, but uh, in, the, in, the, in the evening, oftentimes, noceums get into the tent. They, they, they get in there through the screen. And so you could walk up to one of those tents and you could say, uh, open, the, open it and you could go, nope, there are no noceums in this tent. And he would say, you'd be absolutely wrong because simply based on the fact that you cannot see them. 
You cannot see them. You cannot see any uh, insects in here because you cannot see them. And that's the way that it is with God. You might come to God and say, God, I see no good reason why you would allow evil to happen in this world. But here's the problem. You can't see any good reason why God would allow evil in this world. Simply because of your abilities to see microscopically or down through time. So what do we do with this then? What, is there any comfort in being a Christian serving this God who somehow allows evil, who, who allows this in our lives? Is there any comfort in following him in the midst of this? Let's read on. I said in my heart, verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. What Solomon is stating there is what we know from like Revelation. Like the end of days when Jesus returns. What all of us who are true Christians are waiting for. We are waiting for the end of all things. If, if, you've, ever, if you've never read in Revelation, Revelation chapter 19, it is this incredible picture of Jesus coming. And this is prophecy. It's looking ahead to Jesus returning and making all things right. In Revelation chapter 19 verse 11, it says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true in righteousness, and he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I don't know what picture you have of Jesus in your mind with the flowing robes and the long hair. I don't know what, what, what you have of him, but Jesus returns and he's bringing the fury of the wrath of God on wrongdoers, on wrongdoers. And so what we can take comfort in is this, is that in the end, God will make all things right. In the end, the oppressors will be brought to justice. He's going to come with his sharp sword and he is going to bring the fury of the wrath of God and he is going to execute judgment on all wrongdoers, on everyone who is in the place of justice and yet they're wicked, on anyone who's in the place of righteousness and yet they're wicked, on anyone who should not be oppressing the women of Iraq or the women throughout the world, or the women in the United States through a movie, he is going to exact his revenge on all things one day. He will do it. 
But there's just a small catch. There's just a small catch. And it is this. The next verse in Ecclesiastes. 18. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Did, did you hear what he said there? I, he, let me read it again. He said, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. He goes on, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They have the same breath. They're all going to the grave. What does this mean? What, do, what is Solomon trying to, trying to show us? What is God trying to show us through that? All men are but beasts. Let me ask you this. You ever been angry with someone? You ever been angry you ever, you, ever, you ever been so angry, you've been so bitter towards someone for an extended period of time, or even just a short period of time? Have you, have you ever wanted to go back and get your revenge? Have you ever gone and got your revenge? I'm going to go and give that person a piece of my mind. I'm going to write a hashtag about them. Ooh. If you don't know what a hashtag is, don't worry about it. Uh, it's on the interwebs. Um, have, have you ever gone after someone? Do you know what's happening there? Do you know what's taking place? I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they are but beasts. What's happening in those situations? is that we become a beast and just like an animal. We're reduced to animal instincts because we're trying to exact our revenge. And here's the problem. We're saying, you know what? God doesn't know best and his fury or his wrath is not good enough, so I'm going to stand in the place of God and I will give wrath and I will give the fury of God to this person. I will gossip about them. I'm going to wound them. I'm going to take them out. I'm going to be the one who is going to dish out the wrath of God. Do you know what you're doing? You're having it now. You're having the judgment of God and you're having it right now. And you know what God is showing you? God is showing you that you and I are but beasts. Because you and I can stand and say, you know what, that Kitz Hopper, I never liked him. I never, I never liked him. Look at how he lives his life. Look at the things that he's done. Look at his, uh, his political party if you disagree with it. You know what? I, I can't believe that that guy, Brian Williams, would, would stretch the truth like that. He's supposed to be trusted. The anger that arises in us from this terrorist organization. 
And it is right to be angry with that. But you know what we're doing? We're taking the place of God. And what God wants us to see is this. There is nobody who is not in the line of fire. There's nobody who is not reduced to a beast. When you're going after sexual pleasure, it's more and more and more and more as someone who has got that at their aim. You're reduced to a beast in the midst of your business. We'll slit the throat of someone else and say, uh, forget you. I'm cutting you loose or I'm, I'm firing this person. And that's all there is to it. To get whatever we can, whatever we want. We'll tell half-truths and lies. We'll cheat on our taxes. And God is showing us that we are but beasts. And the truth is this, that every single one of us is, in essence, wicked. Every single one of us is evil. See, here's the thing. If you're going to ask God, hey, God, take all the evil out of the world, what has to happen ultimately is this. He'd have to remove us. The evil is in us. It is part of us. We are but beasts. And so what's the solution to all of this? Solomon essentially says this, verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? He's saying, rejoice in what you have. Enjoy the good things that you have. Enjoy, enjoy life. Because essentially, if you're a secularist, this is all that there is. This is what you're left with. But I just read you something out of Revelation, which says this. You and I know that something's coming. You and I know that there's some sort of guilt, that there's some sort of shame. Do you know how, how much shame affects our lives? Have you, ever, have you ever really looked into that? Have you ever thought about shame and guilt? It's one of the most powerful things that you and I could ever be confronted with in our life. In fact, just this week in the New York Times, an article came out about this gal. Her name was Justine uh, Seiko. And she was a pretty flippant Twitter user. And she was headed to Africa, and so she tweeted this. After a series of other texts, she says, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. And so her, her tweet got shared and got shared again till pretty soon the world, while she's on this flight to Africa, knows about what she just tweeted, which was just a flippant remark. And ultimately what she intended was not to say that white people don't get AIDS, but that as white people, in her mind, we have privilege. And so we're not confronted with those realities as much. But the world didn't know that. And so the world went to shaming her. And by the time her plane landed, what took place was an absolute, complete disaster of her life. 
She was shamed beyond belief until she had gotten to the point where she had lost her job and essentially was living in hiding. And you can look at story after story in this New York Times article about how people's lives were ruined through shaming. And this, this uh, article was, it was absolutely incredible. It's, it's, it's called How One Stupid Tweet Blew Up Justine Seiko's Life. But the author pointed out a couple of other things. He talked about how it used to be common practice within our country to shame people publicly. How uh, shaming was just a part of our society. You'd put them in stocks or they'd be whipped or they'd, they'd be beaten. And people became to, came to realize that there is something wrong with this practice. In fact, this guy ben Benjamin Rush a physician in Philadelphia and a signer of the Declaration of Independence, uh, wrote this. He says, It would seem strange that public shaming should ever have been adopted as a milder punishment than death. Did we not know that the human mind seldom arrives at truth upon any subject till it has first reached the extremity of error? He's saying this, Most people don't really learn until they realize that they've made an error. And so here we are, we're shaming them at the first uh, instance of them actually falling into this error. And so we're shaming these people, and he, he says that this is a horrible punishment. And then in an 1867 editorial in the Times, it said this, The boy of 18 who was whipped at Newcastle for larceny is nine cases out of ten ruined, with his self-respect destroyed. And the taunt and sneer of public disgrace branded upon his forehead. He feels himself lost and abandoned by his fellows. This is talking about shame and how it works in our life. It's talking about how this idea of even public shame is horrific. And did you know that you and I walk around with this all the time? To the degree that it was happening within our judicial system. It happens in me personally. As I walk around with the shame and the guilt. And he's talking about how a boy of 18 is ruined because it's exposed and this happens. You and I know that something's happen, happening. There's going to be an accounting for the things that we've done. There is a shaming that is currently taking place and ultimately and finally will take place. And so the question is, if the evil is inside of us, if I am simply just a beast and ultimately God's judgment is coming, then what is the answer to this? What is the answer to this? Who can know the future? Well, Jesus does. Jesus does. Because of this, Paul says, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save everyone who believes from first to last. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, there is internally inside of us. There's, there's a conversation that's going on, and you may not realize it. You may try to change it by saying, you know what, I've just got to maneuver my self-talk. 
I just have to start being positive with myself. I've got to start telling myself positive things. But here's the thing. In your heart of hearts, at the end of the day, you can continue to tell yourself, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. But at the end of the day, you and I both know that there still is shame, and it's in there. And that shame is the root of everything that's going on in your life. And it drives you to do things that you never would have done before. And you may say, you know what, I'm living in freedom because I'm doing whatever I want. But that freedom is racking up a debt of shame. That freedom is racking up a debt of shame. Every time you screw over a business partner, every time you look lustfully at the person who's not your spouse, every time something takes place in your life that you know that that wasn't right, you're building up a debt of shame. And what we know is this, is that the evil is inside of us and God is going to judge. But here's the thing, but he's made a way. Like, why is the gospel so good? Why, why do we constantly talk about the gospel at this church? Because it is the power of God to save everyone who believes from first to last. Not just some of your shame, but all of it. And when Jesus comes and he's riding on that white horse... I'm on his team. Like, I want to be on that team, right? Because I do not want to be on the receiving end of the wrath of the fury of God. But you know how that happens? Because Jesus was on the receiving end of the fury of the wrath of God. And he's the one who took that punishment for us. And you don't have to experience the shame anymore. You don't have to experience it. You get to give it away. And you know what Jesus gives you instead? Jesus says, I'm gonna take your heart of flesh, your heart of stone, and I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh. I'm gonna take out what's in there and I'm gonna give you something new. By the power of the Spirit of God, I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you from the inside out so that your desires are not based in the here and now, so that you don't have to exact your judgment right here, so that you don't have to pursue sexual pleasure at all costs because ultimately what's going to happen is this, is that he's put eternity in your heart and it will be fulfilled by Jesus having gone to the cross and by Jesus having paid that penalty of the fury of the wrath of God, and what takes place is what's called the great exchange, that he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. He takes our shame. He takes that act that's in your mind. When I say shame, he takes it. And he says, it doesn't have to be dealt with again. I took care of it on the cross. He takes those individual indiscretions and he takes them in and he says, you never need to deal with that again because I'm taking it from you. And real freedom can be achieved. It may be difficult here and now, but real freedom can be achieved because you're not a slave to your desires. You don't have to say, this is all that there is and I'm just going to enjoy this because what you can say is this, that there is a God Yes, he's created this world, but he has made a way, and I'm trusting in him. I believe that it's true that Jesus went 
to a cross and that he was crucified. And when he was crucified and then when he was uh, buried and risen from the grave, what happened was this, the possibility of true and real freedom in my life. But without that, you don't have true freedom because you're always chasing eternity. And you will not catch it without Jesus. You will not catch it without Jesus. Do you want to be constantly wandering? Do you want to be your own God pointing your finger at him saying, you shouldn't do this. You've made your own moral standard. And you must know that God is the one who makes this moral code. And it is intended to point you to the reality that you have no ability to reach him because we are just beasts. But he's made a way for us to be sons and daughters. You get to be a son. You get to be a daughter. I went and got my wife flowers at Costco and I got an extra bouquet. And um, I thought to myself, you know what? I should, I should give this to Reagan, and instant Reagan, my daughter, my uh, five-year-old daughter. I thought to myself, it just flashed through my mind, some jerk is going to come knock on my door and ask to date her someday. And if that sucker, it's a tame version. Uh, I'm almost praying here. Don't be laughing. Um, no. Uh, if that guy doesn't have flowers in his hand, man, the wrath of the fury of God is just going to go, Wah! I mean, it's, it's just going to, it's just, it's not going to be pretty. But can you imagine for a second what God is like? The beauty of my relationship with my daughter is, is not so much that I'm loved, but that I get to love her. And so when I walk into the, the house and I said, this one's for mommy, and she's, oh, mommy, daddy bought you flowers. And I said, and Reagan, this one's for you. And you could not believe the joy that came over her. You would not, I've never seen this look in her eyes before. She, she was instantly just like, her heart was like ripped open. She was, oh, daddy, oh, daddy. I can't even remember what she said. I'm like trying to hold back tears. Can you imagine God as a father? Not demanding your love, but being gracious enough to say this. I'm going to create this possibility of evil because I just want to show you how much I love you and I want you to love me back. And so God doesn't come to you in wrath and fury. And he's not exacting his revenge on you today, finally. You may be receiving the results of bad choices. But there will come a day when we will answer for this. But God comes to us as a, as a young father 
and he's bringing his young girl flowers. And he's saying, I just want you to know that you're loved this much. You have to know how much I love you because I don't want you to go after anything less than what I can give you. And God is saying that to you. I'm sorry, I'm blubbering like an idiot, but this is my daughter. I get choked up. God is saying that to you. I don't want you to love anything less. True fulfillment. Does it come from some jerk guy? Does it come through your job? I've put eternity in your heart so that you would know it's possible. And I gave her flowers so that she would know it's possible to be loved like this. She'll never settle for anything less. And Jesus did that for you on the cross. Lord Jesus, we, we don't understand shame. We don't understand the evil that is inside of us. And for those of us who are Christians, we have spent our life in mediocrity. We've spent our life half-heartedly serving you because we're still pursuing everything else that will not last. And Lord, we don't see the need for you to go through the pain that you went through because we don't realize the extent of our sin because we minimize it and we say it's okay and we say that everybody's doing this, it's consensual and it's not hurting anybody. But Jesus, you know better that it's not just hurting them, but it's hurting us. And we're just as much the oppressor as we are the oppressed. But God, you've come as a loving father and you've brought us the cross and you've said, see, I'm giving you my son and this unending eternal love so that you will never settle for anything less. Lord Jesus, would we receive it? For those of us that are here that have never given our life to Jesus Christ, Lord God, would you change our hearts to understand that the pursuits that we've been after have been fruitless. And whether we're carrying around bitterness and trying to exact your wrath, or whether we're just pursuing sexual pleasure at all costs or, or relationships, God, you are everything that our heart has ever wanted. And if we saw that, we would never want anything more. May we see you as you are on the cross. So would you keep, keep your heads bowed and eyes closed for a minute? <clears throat> and it's some of you, some of us, need to make just kind of a new, just a new awakening to the love of God. You know that you've been after things. You just keep going after things and after things and you don't see Jesus in all of his fullness and the deep love that he has and he just wants to love you. And maybe you've just put it off and you've put it off 
and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and I just want to tell you that today's the day, now is the time of salvation. And so I'm going to invite you in just a second just to stand where you're at, and I'm just going to pray for you. But let me just tell you that a prayer doesn't save you. Your effort doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And it's by trusting in him. And so today, what today's about is trusting in him. Even though there is evil in this world, knowing that God loves me infinitely. So what you're standing for right now is do you want to give your life to Jesus Christ for the first time? There may be none and there may be some, but today is the day. And I want to invite you to stand right now. Just stand right where you are and I'm just going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. And if there's none, that's okay. That's okay. And some of you are here today. You say, I have been pursuing those other things and I have been going after other things. And I don't see the love of my, my Savior. And you're, you're already in. You've, you've been a Christian for a while. But you need to make some changes. And so I want to ask you if you would stand. Just right where you're at right now. If you need, if you need prayer. Anybody else? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I want to ask for true and supernatural change in the lives of these folks that have stood up. And God, I want to ask that you would do something incredible in their lives. That God, that they would truly see their shame, not for the purpose of being ashamed but to know what they need to take to the cross, knowing that you forgive. God, I pray that you would give them a fervor for you that they've never had before. Lord, that they would eat up your word. Lord, that they would uh, listen to your word being preached on a regular basis. And Lord, that their lives would change as a result, that they would increase in grace and mercy and love for you, love for, their, for the people around them, for their family. We ask this in your name we pray, amen.